Okay. Okay. So are are you are you excited? Wait, you mean for this? No, I mean I mean Major <laughs> Bowser might be opening up today. Oh, that's what you're talking about. Oh, I thought you just met Am I excited that we're doing this podcast now? Well, I mean, are you excited about that too? That's a good question as well. <laughs> no, it's a nice change of pace because um, I'm at home now. Well, I guess it does raise the question of what is home. Mm. But I'm I'm home in the sense that I'm in the childhood home that I grew up in. I'm here with my parents and my little brother, Sharif. And um, it's been nice. I've been here for the past uh, few days now. And I think I needed to be outside of D.C. for a bit. Do they know that you are uh, you're you're sitting down to record the podcast? Um, no, but I'll probably tell them later. <laughs> later, so they're not like. Sadly, I would have asked my mom to come and uh, come and say hello, but sadly, she is doing some errands at um, at BJ's. I don't know if you know if BJ's is in D.C., but it's sort of like Costco. She's just getting some stuff. Mm. I've heard of this BJ's. I've never, I've never, <laughs> I've never uh, actually shopped there. You're too elite for that, probably, Demir. Am I? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Anyway, but I, I am, um, you know, so it's it's interesting to be back, you know, so there's just like little things around that remind me of my past. So it was kind of funny. So I, I get back at my, um, I'm in my bedroom and I look at some papers on the desk and there's this um, printout from probably, I don't know, like 15 years ago or something. And I thought initially that it's some poetry because sometimes I would dabble I don't know if I'd call it poetry, but, you know, verses and lines where I thought I could like do a song or a poem or whatever. And I'm reading this and I'm like, damn, I was really good back in the day and I'm reading it. So I'll just give you an example of what what I was reading on the printout. Ready? Sure. Okay. Have you seen the accident outside? Seven people took a ride. Six bachelors and their bride. Seven people took a ride. Don't let me die in an automobile. I want to lie in an open field. Want the snakes to su- want the snakes to suck my skin. Want the worms to be my friends. Want the birds to eat my eyes. And he, as here I lie, the lords fly by. Hmm. Dark. <laughs> Okay, but you know what's funny? I thought you might actually recognize it. No, no. Is it is, is it is it the <laughs> poem I, that Trump read on his on his uh, his campaign in 2016? Not quite, but and then I realized it's actually just the lines from the Doors song mm. called "The End." Oh, I see. So it's Jim Morrison's poetry, and I got really excited. I'm like, "Damn, this is dark, but it's kind of good." Yeah. And like, I was kind of impressed, but I'm like, "No, it's the Doors." Yeah. Well, I mean, what does this say that 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 uh, that you you feel like you have a Jim Morrison in you potentially? Well, yeah, this sort of like you know this this dark view of human nature, but you have that too, Demir. Right. And and it's interesting that you know I, I we should probably do a shout out to one of our fans, um, Tom Barson, um, because he made a comment because Demir, me, you and I had been talking about. You know, if we want to promote the podcast or pitch it and get more people interested, like what sort of our shtick, so to speak? Right. How do people like see this dynamic? What's distinctive about this podcast? And we were just kind of, you know, thinking thinking about that out loud. And then Tom Barson on Twitter, um, I had described the podcast, I think, when I uh, on a tweet like, um, you know, we're neither. This is not a left podcast. It's not a right podcast. It is a an all over the place podcast, and um, you know, sort of like unpredictable, heterodox, whatever. But then he was like, "Well, not quite." Demir is actually quite grounded and grouchy. Shaddy, you're the one who's pointedly all over the place, right? But he said it kind of creates a bizarre effect, and it's like oddly compelling. And I and that that was interesting to me because I hadn't thought of it precisely in those terms. But for podcasts, I think that's a very unusual combination. I don't know how grounded you actually are to me. Yeah, you're pretty grounded. Am I? <laughs> I think so. That's good. 
did you note the fact that he basically said we're not that unpredictable? Even though you're, you're, you're pointedly unpredictable, right? You're pointedly all over the place, therefore predictably so. Yeah, yeah, predictably unpredictable, predictably unpredictable. I suppose. That's yeah. good. That's not the worst thing in the world, right? I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but maybe just to get to some uh, substance, since that's what people thirst for, uh, and that's what they desire most of all from our musings. Mm. And maybe this is a good place to start. I don't know. I was just thinking about it. I actually had trouble sleeping last night because I had, you know, I had all these ideas. I don't know if you've ever had like an ideas burst. Yes. Out of nowhere, at an odd time, all these ideas for like articles you want to write, things you want to do, things you want to talk about on a podcast, they just sort of envelop you. And it, yeah, anyway, so I was just thinking about various things. Anyway, I'm, I'm, um, the, the drive from DC to Pennsylvania was the first time that I was traveling outside of DC or even being in a car for more than 10 minutes at a time since COVID started. And it just does give you some time to reflect. Uh, you know, I was three hours in Uber, basically. Um, and uh, I was wearing a mask the whole time. So I hadn't really thought of that ahead of time, which is like an odd thing. You can wear a mask for 10 or 15 minutes, but to wear it straight for three hours was certainly not the most um, edifying experience. But, you know, you know me, so devoted to taking precautions and being um, a COVID hawk or whatever. Well, not really. Right. So, so, but, you know, it was interesting to see just, you know, what it's like to look around you, you know, you're passing through Maryland, Virginia, then into Pennsylvania. And there was something quite, I don't know, beautiful is the right word, but very, very, um, it felt really good to see the world beyond me, that the world narrows and narrows during lockdown and your circle quite literally becomes quite small. And then to be reminded that there is this vastness, you know, of America, you go on the highway and you experience that. And it was actually quite packed. I mean, there were some traffic jams, mm. which I was somewhat surprised about. I was all, you know, Memorial Day weekend. So I guess people are making, you know, making, making moves to different places. And, um, but, uh, I guess that just got me to reflect about things and just being here in Pennsylvania, um, with my, with my family, it, it does shift your perspective. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but it's a reminder to me that COVID has helped me realize that certain things are just a lot more important to me than, you know, the smallness of politics or Twitter or whatever, which is ultimately, I think, um, uh, if I could sum it up, two categories, um, relationships mm. and food. I guess food isn't as um, profound, but because my mom makes amazing food, I guess I've just been reminded of that. But that contributes to this general sense. And when I say relationships, I'm talking about family, friends, the people who we love, and it just it, it's it's a reminder of the kind of um, fulfillment, happiness, this sort of low intensity pleasure and joy that comes from being around people you really care about over a longer period of time. Anyway, that's just sort of the mindset I was in, I guess, before I started uh, spending more time on Twitter. But that's a different story. Right, right. Well, so a couple of questions. Um Right. So let, let me ask the second question first and answer it whenever you want. But I, do you think do you think you're you've uh, what you just outlined? Are you are you uh, put off by politics? Are you are you sort of uh, drifting away from it more uh, in a sense that that that, you know, the whole sort of, you know, D.C. policy bubble uh, is just sort of repellent to you more and more? That's one question. The other question is maybe uh, you can help uh, you can help me, but presumably some other um, listeners out there. Uh, what What is the state of play in Pennsylvania? I was struck recently, I forget where I was reading this, um, but D.C. is actually in a, in a in a huge minority of states at this point that has such strict measures, as I understand. Uh, I don't know. It's something I, I, I hesitate to put out a number out there because it's probably wrong. But 
it was it was single digits the number of states that have the DC style measures still in place. Uh, so what's no, Pennsylvania like? Yeah. So what's uh, what's Pennsylvania like? So as far as I can tell, we're similar to D.C., and that's led to some grumbling, um, you know, not to put my parents on the spot because I agree with them kind of. But, you know, the grum- they're they're grumbling about it. And um, even though they've, they've generally been very, you know, very supportive of taking serious measures and lockdown and all that. And that's and I was like that as well. And I say was purposely here because my view on lockdown has shifted, I would say, over the past few weeks, where just certain things seem quite arbitrary to me. And, and they sort of, I don't want to say they make me angry, although sometimes it feels like that. But basically, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're spending, we're spending some time in, in Philly, in, in a park, and they closed a major uh, highway or street or whatever, and people are walking. And it was like a really nice vibe. The weather was beautiful and all that. And we wanted to eat. And the idea that we have to go and do takeaway and then like find some random place in the grass and it's kind of uncomfortable where, you know, it's still basically doing the same thing. We're eating outside and the arbitrariness of not being willing to open outdoor sections of cafes or restaurants, even though we know that outdoor transmission is is pretty unlikely or pretty low and isn't a major concern compared obviously to indoor restaurants and things like that it just you start to wonder like what what is the thinking and why aren't our our elected officials or or for that matter our unelected officials or health authorities whatever they're not explaining why they're making certain choices that i think more and more of us seem odd weird and unnecessary and um, so I think that we were, we're sort of in this state of, OK, we get it. Lockdown is important. But why? What is this? What is the game plan here? This is incoherent. And you know that, that me, Demir, I have a sort of obsession with outdoor restaurants and outdoor cafes. I think that's really it's really important for people to be able to, you know, have the opportunity to enjoy their lives in safe ways. Yeah. So, you know, we have this question as a sort of family unit, like what's up with Governor Wolf? Like when is, you know, what's what's the game plan here, which is similar to how I feel about Mayor Bowser um, in D.C. But it is nice to hear that it seems like reopening, at least phase one of it, will be starting soon. On your other question about um, the smallness of politics, you know, I've always had this off and on relationship with with political combat in some ways I do enjoy argument and I like to think that I'm willing to rise to the occasion and, and go back and forth on some of these debates on Twitter and elsewhere if I'm in the right mood. But I guess I'm not a fan of small politics. And by that, I just simply mean anything that's focused on Trump, the individual, anything that is about partisan combat, um, I find all of that increasingly um, silly, boring, irrelevant, and um, it's it's not worthy of the people who have who have you know otherwise smart people on Twitter, commentators that I generally respect, and to see them dragged down to this level of an obsession with Donald Trump as this um, this prime mover, this all encompassing independent variable. And it just it's sad to see because I think that our elites or experts or mainstream commentators, they're capable of a lot better. So I've seen I consider that to be a sort of devolving of the the public discourse. And I hate that I'm dragged into it. I don't want to talk about it on Twitter. But then, you know, you got to respond to something at least, especially if it's coming from prominent folks who you might otherwise respect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just on the on the um, on the the whole sort of what COVID has done for me, (laughs) uh, you know, psychologically, I I, it's it's hard. It's hard to it's hard to tell on my end. Um, I I think we talked we certainly talked about it in person. I don't remember if we mentioned it uh, on the podcast, but Peter Pomerantsev's essay recently in the American interest about, uh, you know, the 
the question of time, basically, in all of this. I, it's, it's still so resonant because I was about to say, I, I feel like this past weekend, I, I struck some new balance, but I felt like I've, I've said that several weeks ago, and then the balance uh, crumbled away. In general, I've found, I mean, weirdly in parallel to, but I, we're, we're different people, so I think it just manifests differently. Um, I've had a lot of trouble, I think, of even though we're isolated, uh, of, of somehow drawing a line between um, life out there and then sort of me time. And I think I've really struggled with that over the last few weeks. Um, and so uh, I just found myself really exhausted whenever I'm not working. And I feel, felt like I'm working all the time somehow, even though it's not exactly true. It's just, it's just, it manifests as a really terrible use of time. So I don't know, this weekend, um, I, I, I managed to, to read more and, and, and be more selfish a little bit, I guess, somehow. And that seems to have helped. And that it helped? I hope so. Okay. I hope it did. I hope. But so, so Demir, but I remember early on in the lockdown, um, you felt more positively about how, how you were ma- managing your time and reading and all that. And you, you almost, you were joking, obviously, but you know, I guess I suppose it was partly serious that, you know, your sometimes your natural inclination is to not socialize, to not go out and to be liberated from having, from social obligations or going to receptions or whatever it might be. I, I, I recall that like in, in March, you were like, oh, this is like, this is like my, um, my perfect uh, hermetic seal or whatever. Right. But I guess that shifted over time where you felt it wasn't providing that hermetic seal anymore. No, right. That was the paradox of it. It, it felt, it felt the opposite somehow, somehow. And I'm not sure why, uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll probably have to work it out over the, you know, the coming weeks and months, exactly what happened the last few months. And again, I, that's why I think Peter's essay is so good because it's, it's the, the lack of, of measurable time, uh, how it's just, it's, it's just this sort of uh, event that happened, but it's it's hard to even remember it. Um, well, well, since we're since we're on that, I do want to get back to to Peter's uh, piece and and maybe ask you something about it. But before that, just an idea about what's going on here in terms of our personal approaches to this to lockdown. And I just I'm just making this up now, but um, I think that um, so. I'm not a hundred percent, hundred percent sure that I'm an extrovert. I think that a lot of my friends think that I'm an extrovert in, in some fashion, but let's, let's kind of, let's, let's say that I am. Mm, okay. Mm. There, there's a possibility that there's a certain kind of extrovert like me, I suppose that lockdown is very good for that. It, it liberates us in a way because we do enjoy spending time with people. We do enjoy being active, but we're not full extroverts. There's also this misanthropic side to us, or maybe I'm an introverted extrovert or an extroverted introvert. So what what the um, Corona era lockdown has done for me, it's provided a kind of license and liberation, liberated me from from feeling that I have to do things that I might not always want to do that. Um, I like reading on my own. I, I like, you know, binge watching TV shows. Um, but I feel guilty about it in the, I felt guilty about it in the pre COVID times because I felt like, wait, I'm actually going to stay home and be lame and read when my friends are hanging out. And like, whenever I had that choice, it's not that I felt pressure to meet up with people or to socialize. It's that I genuinely wanted to, or maybe I'm just, my world is socially constructed that I'm, I'm so used to saying yes because of FOMO or whatever it might be. So what lockdown did for me, it gave me a new kind of structure and it also resolved. I mean, I, I have this, um, people who I guess, you know, read my stuff or have listened to this podcast for a while know that I have an obsession with the idea of the paradox of choice. Mm -hmm. And basically that with limitless choice, we end up becoming less happy and less fulfilled. And there's the whole behavioral economics um, experiment about the jars of jam 
And like even my parents joke joke with me because they've heard about the jars of jam so much. And I kind of do a whole thing around it. And a lot of my talks, I'll mention the jars of jam. But basically, for the uninitiated, the jar, you know, if you give someone, um, uh, you tell, tell people choose choose jam. You know, you give uh, one group three jars of jam. You give the other group, I don't know, thirty, twenty-seven, whatever. And you might think that with more choice, you know, that's great. You can choose different flavors. You're into that. You're excited about trying new things, whatever. But what they find, and this might almost sound too obvious or intuitive because I think a lot of the people who listen to a podcast like ours probably know that, you know, having 30 jars of jam to choose from actually makes you unhappy and makes you unfulfilled. And after you make your choice, you wonder um, whether you made the right choice and you, oh, wait, should I have chosen jar 26 or jar 17? But when you have three jars of jam to choose from, that's easy. That's manageable. It limits choice. And because it limits choice, you end up more content with the decision that you made. So what lockdown basically is for me, it's a behavioral, I I, I don't mean to be flippant about it. Obviously it's it's a terrible time and a tragedy and I wish it never happened, but it's also a sort of natural experiment for how we live and how we react to different stimuli where it's resolved in some sense, for me, the paradox of choice. And there is no longer the the illusion or even the reality of unlimited choice. I have less choice and it reorders my world in a way that I think has been helpful for me. The, the, uh, uh, the other way to describe the paradox of choice that, that gets into tinges into both authoritarianism and, <laughs> and, uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, sort of expertise, um, you know, um, it would be the, 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 the paradox of the salad bar, right? Salad bars make us unhappy. What we really need <laughs> is a chef who actually knows how to make a salad, not give me a bunch of ingredients and have to make my own salad, right? <laughs> There's your paradox of choice. I've actually never heard that before. That's a really good one. I, I, may, I, like- I may have coined that one. I, I've, I've, that's one I've been <laughs> developing over the years at the magazine, going down and being angry at the salad bar. Yeah, because we know this about, you know, why do we hate buffets? Right. Like no one... Well, I shouldn't say no. You one. got you got heat on Twitter when you said that no one likes buffets. I recall people attacked you. Yeah, for being like classist, elitist, yeah. like pointy-headed, ivory tower academic, un-American. Like, yeah, un-American. They're like real Americans like buffets. Real Americans. I also had this. I'm also very anti-cruise ship. Mm-hmm. I think the idea of cruises is like the worst thing in the world. And it's to kind of, um, to, to quote David Foster Wallace, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again because I have, in fact, been on cruises. Mm. And I know this personally. So, um, yeah. But then people are like, oh, my God, wait, cruises are good. You know, you c- cruises are good for ordinary – I don't even – whatever. Right. Ordinary Americans like cruises, Shaddy. Why are you being so smug in your superiority right. and all this – whatever. Um, but I think you're right that, um, but the problem with the chef analogy, so I agree with you. If you have like one of the best chefs in the world, like, um, and they're, they're cooking great food for you day in and day out, then the chef model, the authoritarian chef model works really well. The problem is if the great chef who you maybe had, who was benevolent and nice and very good taste in food, if he dies or is removed because some chef stages the sous chef stages an internal coup in the restaurant and then the sous chef rises to chefdom then you sort of have a problem if the sous chef is pretty bad or the sous chef hates you or the sous chef is into um how to say into chinese food when you don't like chinese food but i don't want people to get the wrong idea that was a bad example yeah bad okay if the sous chef is really into, I don't know, I love Ethiopian food, and that's like the one cuisine that you hate, then you're you have a really big problem because there's no way to get rid of the new chef, right? And so maybe you know the the argument also for democracy is that it's important to struggle and make subpar salads at the salad bar because it gives you an experience of making these sort of hard decisions whether you're going to put eggs or 
<laughs> or bacon bits on your on your salad, and it doesn't always come out all right. But but you know, it's better that everyone has the the ability to make their own salad, even if if outcomes are not always as good as they would be with a Michelin star chef. There you go. There's the there's the whole. Demir, that's actually a perfect analogy. I could that's, make I could write like a short book on this, right? Like a hundred pages about. How 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 democracy is like a salad bar, and then I think that that would sell. You know, it's one of those things that well, when we had stores, it would be like one of those like crappy little books at the checkout counter that maybe you know you end up buying as well because it's fun. <laughs> I was going to say it should be an American interest essay, <laughs> but maybe your readers are too sophisticated for salad bar comparisons. I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah. So, so, but back to the, you know, the alienation from politics, um, and then the, the, the fact of Trump, did you, did you read that, that, uh, I'm trying to remember if I sent it to you, the, the Washington post, um, uh, column by Henry Olson about Trump and his reelection strategy. Yes, I did read that. Yeah. I mean, you know, because you also went on and, 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 uh, and tweeted a bit about, about, I think around the same subject about, uh, the lockdown and expertise and, um, uh, you know, your all all mixed through all of this that you've just been describing, your trip and seeing your family and, and the sort of shared um, anecdotal, let's uh, let's put out there, but still shared sort of frustration um, with uh, with how things uh, how things are going. Um, I don't know. How do, how do we dive in on the, the, the question of Trump and all of this? My feeling is, is that, you know, and I, I've, I've had this sort of inchoate feeling for a while, and I felt that, that Henry Olson's article did a good job of, of, of maybe um, uh, solidifying uh, some of these thoughts I've had. But it's, it's that, you know, the, the sheer perversion of Donald Trump, his, his, um, his just his, his ability to uh, alienate so hard uh, so many people has paradoxically created a reaction against among uh, you know people who can't stand him that has caused them to I think almost um, in a panic grip onto this idea that uh, a path through this can only happen through experts. Trump is flaunting expertise at every turn, uh, and therefore, you know, destroying the country. I mean, it's it's in so many ways, it's an echo of everything that's been happening up until now. Um, and in the early days of the of the coronavirus, uh, you know, there was a lot to recommend this. And you know, I, I think polling still bears out that people are very skeptical of Trump. He's not doing well, but it's in your tweets and in general, the sort of feeling of people just being fed up. And never mind, you know, me and you complaining about uh, simple uh, personal comforts. I mean, what we're also talking about is this massive, massive unemployment, and people are really hurting out there. Um, and one wonders whether we're about to have another shift. And, you know, uh, so Memorial Day weekend just happened. Americans traveled a lot, especially into Florida and these other places. 14 days from now, if there isn't a spike in cases, of course, people will say, well, it might be heat. It might have been social distancing, et cetera, et cetera. This doesn't invalidate anything. But I do feel like it will have invalidated a whole bunch of stuff. And I think you were getting at this in your tweet thread. So I don't know. You, you want to run with any of that right now? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, okay. I was I was a bit more angry about this yesterday, so let me try to artificially summon yesterday's anger. But basically, um, I don't know. When I think about it, it does rile me up a little bit. Um, and the fact that I have this reaction, granted people might attack me for being a contrarian and all of that, but ultimately I am – you know, I I am on the left. I really don't want Trump to win, and it scares me. And I, I've talked about this in the past, how it's just going to be um, the thought of four more years of this is is just appalling and exhausting and all that. But the fact that – and someone who was pro-lockdown like me and really – and in some sense prefer, would have preferred a stricter lockdown for a shorter period – 
the fact that I'm now finding this own resistance inside of myself that it's building despite the fact that I know that it might be slightly problematic. So I have to sort of correct for that and make sure that my anger doesn't lead me to take positions which are just wrong or are too much a reaction to the people who I am annoyed by. And this is so so often what happens that if you have these smug so-called whatever liberal elites who are COVID shaming everyone and being holier than thou, that you start to develop a political position or even an ideological position that is defined in opposition to them. So you're not really, your position is not a true reflection of what you actually believe. It's more of an oppositional stance. And we all have to be very careful about that. I I, I know personally that I fall into that sometimes. So that's one concern that I have. So in this tweet thread, I tried to be a little bit self-conscious about it. But the fact that, but we are human beings and we react to things the way that human beings react to things, which is that if there is um, a provocation or a stimulus that pushes us in a particular direction. So I've been bombarded by all this self-righteous um Experts are the best thing ever. Trump is the worst thing ever. And um, technocrats and all, all this, all this, all the standard stuff that you might expect. And then you kind of look back and you say, OK, you, you, you mainstream commentators, quote unquote experts, you were wrong about masks. You told us that masks weren't necessary, which is why I didn't get a mask for the first month of this because they were saying it was only necessary for people who were at risk or medical professionals or save the mask for the people who really need them. Don't worry about it. Then there was this 180 shift that happened literally in the span of two weeks where then it was like universal masking. And I'm just like, okay, you're wrong about that. Then you said that Floridians were self-killing or committing statewide suicide or whatever because they were reopening beaches too soon and that turned out to be nonsense because as long as you're relatively socially distanced on a beach and you're not all grouped together as we mentioned the risk of outdoor transmission is pretty low especially if the weather is is somewhat warmer humid or whatever so they were wrong about outdoor transmission and they were freaking out about that in the case of florida they said that these Republican governors literally or, well, actually, yes, literally have blood on their hands for doing early reopening of beaches and whatnot. Turned out that was totally wrong. They hailed Andrew Cuomo as some sort of national hero, despite the fact that he presided over the main disaster in the country. Maybe he maybe he got better over time, but in those crucial early days, Andrew Cuomo's response was slow, tepid, and incompetent. To say nothing of Bill de Blasio, people wreck on him a bit more, but actually not as much as he, as he deserves. I mean, you go back. So I started going back to what all these folks were telling us and making us feel that we were dumb and small and, and all this and saying, why can't we be like um, South Korea? But then we then we look at Japan, and there was an interesting article about this in Bloomberg the other day. Japan didn't do a full lockdown, and um, and doesn't even have an aggressive tracing system. So the two things that everyone said were absolutely essential. Japan wasn't doing either of them, and has one of the lowest caseloads uh, per capita. Um, in the world. Incidentally, let me just so, jump in you here just to add one yeah. thing. Do you know New Zealand doesn't mandate masks? Just something that I picked up on Twitter and I was just, as you were talking, I just looked it up. From what I can tell, they don't have a mandatory mask policy. Yeah. So all these things and you actually look at it and, you know, you don't have to be a genius to know that there's inconsistencies and incoherences in the narrative. And I think that a lot of Americans ordinary Americans who maybe don't follow this stuff all that closely, they can sense that something is off in the messaging that we've been receiving. And even if you look, so, you know, then I, then I look, I look back at some other things. Okay. Um, 
what else have um and I use elites and scare quotes. I know it's a problematic term, but just you know, whatever, mainstream elites or whatever you want to call them, center left elites, they they got um the whole narrative about American democracy dying and the fa- and the idea that Trump was a Mussolini in the making or a would-be Hitler. And this stuff was actually very mainstream. You know, I've, I've written various pieces about it where I go through prominent commentators and so-called experts indulging in this very maximalist language that we're returning to like, this is comparable to interwar Germany. And it's like you actually go, you actually go into the evidence, you go into the facts, and you're like, this is absolute nonsense. And they've been proven time and time again to be wrong that we haven't become an autocracy. And this might be a topic for another time, but Ross Douthat had a really good piece in the New York Times uh, last week where he said that if the COVID, if this COVID crisis tells us anything, it provide it provides a definitive confirmation that the American democracy is dying thesis is just plain out wrong. This was Trump's real chance to use this crisis to maximize and consolidate power and to become the autocrat that he was supposedly always in process of becoming. And he hasn't done that at all. If anything, he skirted authority. He doesn't want authority. He's devolving authority. And he's saying, hey, you states, you figure this stuff out. And it isn't like Hungary. It's not like Viktor Orban. So, I mean, the fact that n- there's been no accountability among these academics, some of them very well regarded, some of them who were who an inspiration to me as, as a, uh, you know, in grad school, and I still respect them. But then I'm like, how are they indulging in these in these non-empirically based fantasies? So there's that. Then there's Russia Russia collusion. And how um, those maximalist claims turned out to be, um, you know, people can debate, but I think at the very least, they were pretty off. They were pretty misleading. And one might even argue that some of them were quite pernicious. Um, the idea that Trump was quite literally a Russian asset. So you just, I mean, the, and I'm just talking about things from the last four years. Then we can talk about the mishandling of a 2015 refugee crisis. These are centrist elites who we entrusted governance to because they were supposedly smarter, better, more enlightened. And at some point you have to say, I mean, why do they deserve our trust and deference? Sorry, that was a rant. Yeah, no, I mean, and and I'm very sympathetic to a lot of it. Um, But I wonder, you know, that's what I liked about the Henry Olson piece is that, uh, you know, uh, he he lays out that Trump is making a calculated gamble. He's always been a gambler uh, in politics and his businesses that have failed, but he just sort of he always takes bets and then plays hardball, right? So the bet that he's making right now is that public sentiment's against him and his handling of it, but that there will be a shift soon. Uh, he's betting that we won't have spikes and that, um, you know, uh, you will— uh, uh, there will be just like a, a huge sea change and he'll be proven right. The The thing I struggle with is that, um, to get back to the one of the, the, the themes we sounded at the beginning, what, what has COVID done for me? What has the lockdown done for me? I, I, you know, the New Zealand thing and the masks there, for example, and all the other cases you, you listed about, you know, uh, what has worked, what hasn't, it, 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 it has hammered into me a... A level of 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 humility that um, I mean that perhaps was expressing itself as sort of um, contrarian skepticism before, but now just a, a, a deeper level of humility, and that doesn't mean that experts shouldn't be trusted. It's that there are uh, there are the, the the spheres of expertise in politics are distinct. Um, and how do I put it? Uh, we shouldn't, we shouldn't confuse those, I guess is what I'm getting at. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to sort of formulate something along the lines of, I, I don't like Trump's dislike of 
expert advice. However, I think that Trump's ability to do politics uh, and to think politically is what's hamstringing his opponents in a big way because they think that uh, because the fact of Trump has made them, I think, uh, conflate expertise and and politics. Now, I think you're right that you know this goes way beyond this. I remember. Uh, when Walter Mead was at uh, the American Interest still, you know, one of the sort of editorial meetings, um, Walter was just saying, he said, look, the world is so complicated right now. And the, the one expert class that, that, that really feels like they, uh, or claims, has a claim to uh, uh, some kind of knowledge and proper expertise, I would say, he said, was, were economists and specifically central bankers. And he said, I, the way I see it, I, you know, especially since 2008, even before then, but it's since 2008, they don't know what they're doing. Um, they're, they, they have a bunch of levers that they've developed, this, this complex machine, and they're pushing on some of them, pulling on others, and they're like, well, this does this, and confidently, you know, pronounce on this. Uh, but uncharted territory ever since 2008, and we're in even more uncharted territory right now. So I guess that's what I'm getting at, is, is, is it's not to excuse... Trump's political approach to things or even to embrace it. However, I guess it's been watching this. It has been, it's been edifying and somewhat horrifying to see Trump's opponents just step on the same rake over and over again because he, he positions himself as a boorish, know nothing. Uh, they miss the fact that he's actually uh, politically savvy and strategic. Now, again, not all his bets are going to uh, play out, and I, 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 I wonder whether this bet on, on the shift in, in public mood around lockdowns is going to play out. But at the same time, I, I, it's, it's, it's this conflation of expertise and leadership that is, I think, the rake that keeps hitting, uh, you know— broadly, very broadly, liberal elites in the face. And uh, I, I, I hope that soon somehow they snap out of it, that you get someone who is able to speak in the language of, you know, uh, very broadly liberal ideas and the concepts that I think fundamentally and inescapably undergird this country uh, and is able to lead politically, not as, well, a technocrat, I guess. I mean, going back to all the other uh, topics that we've hit on in previous episodes. Um, I guess that's what's been, what's been uh, sort of clarifying for me uh, in this crisis. And, and that's why I think, it, it, you know, I'm not very optimistic because I think Trump brings out the worst in otherwise good people. Yeah, That's one of his remarkable abilities and in that sense you know we fall into his trap quite often and i should clarify i mean i I totally agree that um expertise is obviously important but i i think that what we're trying to say i think is expertise is one thing it's not everything there are other things that are important when you have a group of people making decisions and what particularly bothers me is elevating expertise as some kind of sign of moral virtue. That, I think, is what really troubles me, that those who have knowledge are inherently superior, not in terms of the knowledge that they possess, but in terms of their virtue, that there is something intrinsically better if someone is enlightened because they have expertise and so on. And um, and that leads to, I think, this characteristic smugness that we see from so many, I would say, particularly on the center left, less so the left left, which I think has a different um, set of priorities. And I think it really, at some level, it ends up putting off almost everyone. Um, and, you know, if you're on Twitter, you don't realize that because it's just a lot of if you don't follow a diverse group of people you might end up talking to a lot of other center left elite expert 
academic types or whatever it might be. So, you know, my my ideal is having a mix of genuine expertise and also genuine humility about what we can know in the world. And this, I don't want to go too off topic, but I think when I think about the importance and necessity of humility, I, I, um, I think about God. I think that one thing is that if God is no longer central, if there isn't something beyond us as mere humans, and you think that we have so much control over everyday outcomes, over even natural disasters and pandemics, then it creates a certain kind of arrogance that I think has become synonymous with a certain type of technocrat, that they are these godlike figures, and if only we could follow them. You know, I, I don't mean to strain um, the, the 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 metaphor here, but um, I think that w- in its ideal form, obviously, there's a lot of um, arrogant, prideful, religious people who you know destroy things and all that. But when I think about religion in its best form and in its most humane form, I think it leads to a sense of of proportion and perspective where if God is there, if God is all powerful and all knowing, then by by definition, it makes us it makes us sinners. It makes us weak. It makes us fallible. Um, and I think that, you know, more technocrats and experts um, could make use of that sentiment. Does that make sense? No, it makes sense. Um, I, I, I think, uh, well, it gets back to the, the, the question of authority and what people want and need on these sorts of things. I, I guess, I guess I would just, you know, uh, being a hard bitten, uh, irreligious person, I I I I think that the the it gets back to for me the uh the importance of understanding that political leadership is informed by expertise but isn't expertise and uh that in fact politics and again leadership political leadership is making a call um democracy I suppose is is trying to intuit which person would be most and best placed to make the call uh, and make the right call in a tough situation. Um, you know, there, there's, this is a bit of a digression, but there was always a, a kind of um, discourse among uh, people, democracy, um, not even activists, just sort of uh, Political scientists, to a less extent, because it's not it's not quantifiable. But just when you talk to people about democracy casually, uh, there was an assumption that um, you know uh, the sort of collective horse sense, the wisdom of crowds, but the the collect- collective horse sense of voters uh, is able to ferret out um, you know the qualities in a leader uh, of a quality person, and that necessarily, therefore, uh, you know the the leadership need is met. Um, I've always been skeptical of it, and that's why, to a certain extent, uh, the election of Trump has been has tickled me. Not because I want ill for uh, for America or you know or the world or any of it, but 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 you know, like, come on. And yet, you know, here we go. Where I find myself now in the situation watching this, um, I'm not sure that Trump's political gamble is going to pay off. Uh, but you know what, like. The Americans have voted for a certain kind of politician and, uh, you know, the country, they didn't vote for him by a majority, but they got him given the system that they have. And, uh, you know, now we're, we, we have this guy leading us and I'm looking at it and, and, you know, he's making political decisions, uh, whether we're going to pay the price, uh, you know, whether by July we're going to be in like triple lockdown because the New York situation has spread across the country, um, or whether by July we're going to be sort of looking back to what had happened and not really comprehending what we were talking about in April. I don't know. I don't know. But it's it's been interesting to watch, again, this tension between expertise and political leadership um, and how how different sort of classes and politically 
oriented people are interpreting and, and dealing with these things. Um, I, I, I hate to say it, that is, you know, even if Trump's uh, gamble here ends up being catastrophically wrong, um, I, 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 I feel that, that the lesson learned by Trump's opponents will be the wrong one at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot there that's interesting now that I'm just kind of thinking it through. Well, I mean, first of all, the next two, three, four weeks or whatever, I think will be pretty crucial to get an early indication of this. Um, just, just based on what we know about incubation periods and so on. And, you know, my sneaking suspicion, well, certainly he's made a big bet, as you kind of laid out and as Henry Olson lays out in his uh, Washington Post piece. And this is where I think... Trump is not some like random dummy. Um, he actually has made a calculation. And my sneaking suspicion is that he's made the right bet. I hate to say it. And um, uh, but, you know, I think there's also there's also this sense of I don't know if karma is the right word, but I think I almost feel like there's some greater there there's some weird force this weird psychic force in the world that if if liberal types keep on insisting on one reality this psychic force in the world almost wants to punish them for their smugness yeah I, that makes obviously no sense no but, i mean but, i i understand the sentiment um yeah, sure. I, I, I don't believe in the force, though, but I, well, I understand. I don't believe in the force either, but it's almost because it's happened so often as of late, not just in American politics, but also on things like Brexit. And I don't know, maybe I suppose you could hypothesize that if God has a somewhat eccentric sense of humor, that there could be, you know, some role there. I don't really, that's not really my understanding of God. I don't tend to see God as someone who is a particularly interventionist God, but, you know, putting aside a whole theological conversation about agency and free will and all that, you know, um, if I, I think that, I do I do have a particular sense of the American people and it's not to say and I could be totally wrong and I'm obviously not an expert in the American people is anyone um although it's interesting that you mentioned and I'll just this is I suppose a tangent that you know you were talking about distinguishing between expertise and expertise in politics and it just made me think about something that I think Karina had mentioned, or maybe we had mentioned in our episode about the Russian soul, that there's actually a term in Russia, uh, they're called political technologists, who are quite literally tech, like technocrats in the art of political, uh, political bullshit or co competition or whatever in a very cynical way, obviously. So I suppose that they are quite literally experts in the art of politics. Right. I mean, you know, the political technologist, the equivalent is someone like Karl Rove, right? Or David Axelrod. But anyway. <laughs> oh, so I guess we have them we too. Do. We just don't yeah. call them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I guess they're called consultants. Right. Exactly. Political consultants. It's just, it sounds better in, in, as a political technologist, but yes. Yeah, but I, but I, going back like, the American people. Okay, I think that there is something about Americans. They like to like, they like to shove it in other people's faces. So if there are enough Americans who feel like they've been bullshitted to and talked down to and all this and that, um, the the elites, however well intentioned they were, or the technocrats. Even though I do believe that most technocrats who work on, say, health policy. They really want to help this country. They really want to lessen um, the disastrous impact of this pandemic. So I'm not I'm not going to question that. I've always been a big believer that people with very good intentions um, can do very bad policy. And we should be able to separate between the badness of individuals from the standpoint of character or morality and actual political outcomes. I mean, that's been one of my big arguments about Obama. 
I think Obama was an extremely good man. I think he was a moral, like a strong moral center. But obviously, don't get me started on the policy outcomes, especially on foreign policy. So I think that if you interpret the character of the American people as being predisposed to calling out bullshit, even if it makes their lives worse, then it means that we might very well have another four years of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I mean, we've been at it for a while. Let me let me just uh, 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 try and and wing us around to uh, just that question we were talking about time and 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 all of this and in, in in the um, in the pandemic. Uh, you know, one thing that I've been sort of thinking about um, about again how Peter Pomerantsev's essay has resonated with me uh, throughout this period, and even now looking back to two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I'm actually quite glad we're doing this podcast because I'll be able to go back and listen to myself and figure out what the hell I was thinking. But you know, the other essay that, that has sort of been excavated for me, uh, and I, 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 I sort of poo-pooed it at the time, but, but in light of Peter's, I've been thinking about it a bit more, is uh, that David Brooks essay that came out about how no one talks about plagues or whatever. Not that this is you know oh, yeah, anything yeah. like that, but how this like memory hole seems to happen. And it, you know, what I, I didn't like, and I still don't really like about, about, uh, the Brooks essay was this idea that, you know, we're forced to be selfish and, and immoral and, um, you know, uh, just do beastly things and therefore no one wants to talk about it. And it's just ends up a memory hole that way because everyone's silent. I, I just, in light of Peter's essay and just sort of thinking about this question of time, I'm, I'm, I literally wonder whether I'll be able to understand where I was, you know, a month ago, three months from now, if things go well. Um, I, I think that, that, that it's, uh, you know, the, again, what has, what has COVID done for me or done to me, uh, and the lockdowns and all of it, it's just, it's, it's a psychological change that I think is actually quite profound. And, and maybe that's why, um, you know, when you have such disruptions and such uh, uh, changes that have so little grounding in previous lived experience, um, and it's so disorienting that, yeah, you you just you just memory hole it because there isn't any way to relate it to anything that came before. Or, quite frankly, anything that's likely to come after as whatever the new normal ends up being emerges. I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. So you're saying that you ha it, had a, it definitely had a profound effect on you in a somewhat unusual way in, in terms of your life. But at the same time, there's a sense that it will the profoundness of it will be forgotten subsequently. Almost, uh, but almost necessarily, right, is the feeling. that, like, Because it was so profound and so, you know, disorienting. So disorienting, maybe not profound. I mean, just sort of maybe all-encompassing is a better word than profound uh, because it's, it's all-encompassing, but perhaps not that, not lasting in any way, you know? That, that, or, you know, again, it's one of those things is, is, is what is an experience, you know, like... Perhaps an experience is just something that you can contextualize and make sense of. And if it's something that happens, and even if it lasts for three months, six months, um, and then you sort of emerge on the other side, like exiting a tunnel, blinking in the light, and you're like, oh. And then you just sort of go on your, your, your journey ahead. And soon, you know, maybe you'll remember that you passed through a tunnel, but you won't really remember what it was like inside the tunnel. Okay. Okay. This is, this is, okay. So a couple things. I mean, one is that it suggests that there is, there is this kind of craving of normalcy. And once we get to normalcy, we forget what the abnormal was, but you can correct me if I'm wrong about that. But the other thought I had was, um, I'm reading this novel. Uh, it's by this Dutch American, um, author from the the first half of the 20th century. His name is Peter Peter DeVries. the The book is called the book is the Blood of the Lamb. Mm. I'm not finished, but there's a really interesting section that I'm going through right now where it's actually a, a somewhat. I think it's a profound insight because, uh, well, I probably won't be able to translate it well, but basically, he um, his daughter in in the novel has. Um, 
has a really bad illness, a terminal illness, uh, a potentially terminal illness. They see the doctor and the doctor essentially grants them a reprieve saying that there is an option that we can try out and it might be good for six months to a year. We can't guarantee anything after that. And as he's going home with his daughter from the hospital, he feels such an intense bout of happiness and fulfillment that for just a moment, he knows it may not last. He has this time with his daughter. It's a restoring of what was there before. So it's a really interesting argument that he's implicitly making that true the, the greatest kind of happiness doesn't come from the peaks of our lives, like the 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 moments of being totally, utterly in love the first time we see someone or the most amazing trip we've ever experienced or getting some award that defines our career. The most beautiful moments are when after our lives and the things that we hold dear are threatened, hmm. if we can just be returned to what was normal, that 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 is that is what life is about and you hold on to those moments and those are the ones that you remember and there's some other examples in 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 the novel where there's a few friends with with the main character talking about the the great moments of their lives and they're just sharing sharing stories late into the night and they all choose anecdotes from their lives where they were so close to death or they or their lives were so close to unraveling and just at the edge of the cliff so to speak they were able to find a way back and that's and then that's the moments those are the moments no one talks about their marriage or wedding or love as great as those things might very well be they remember what it was like to to stand back and and see death, but to ultimately avoid death or to avoid some utter tragedy. So I, I don't know that that just came to mind, and I don't uh, I don't know if you if that kind of provokes any thoughts on your end. But that there there is something there that um, I you know I, I I'll try to unpack more as I finish finish the novel. But I think you might be getting at some of that. Or I could be totally off. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a facet of that. Um, I I it's it's for me maybe it's more that uh, we have less access uh, to ourselves, even our memories, than than we're comfortable thinking. I mean, that's that's where I think the David Brooks piece perhaps is wrong because it, it assumes, you know, a possible access to everything. And that there's a kind of, I don't know, not necessarily Freudian, but Freud came up with the idea that we're repressing these sorts of things. Whereas, you know, a different way to think about it is that they just become inaccessible because, because whether it's, um, you know, the, the, this loss of time sense that we have, that it just, it, it renders the entire experience uh, hard to parse. And now, sure, I'm sure novels will be written after this, as people try and grapple and 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 uh, reinterpret what had happened, but I it's it's a feeling of of that that you know perhaps all of this will be incomprehensible, quite literally incomprehensible to us on the oh, other yeah. side. And it's not you know the only thing I'd say is it's not I'm not saying it's a it's a desire for normalcy because one can imagine in fact that a vaccine doesn't happen that uh, treatments are unsatisfactory and our lives are transformed. Um, in that sense, um, perhaps this, this early period remains more comprehensible. And in fact, our memories of what was before become more difficult to properly conjure up. Maybe, maybe they're just colored with a kind of nostalgia and even a feeling of, of silliness and innocence, but you, you'll never recover it properly. Like there's no actual recovery of, of, of memory and past experience. I don't know. Anyway, that's, that's a, that's a, okay. That, that what you just said right there is fa Okay. So there is no recovery of past memory and experience. Uh -huh. So, I mean, that's something we, we may want to revisit. I'll just say though, that one interesting thing about the Brooks essay 
because you're talking about how there might be literature, you know, there'll be literature and coronavirus will figure into the literature. And I don't know, a character will be wearing a mask and and all that. But what's interesting about the um, the Spanish flu or whatever the uh, the good folks are calling it now, that um, there wasn't actually much great literature, if any. And that's one of the points that Brooks makes in the piece. There wasn't a literature that emerged from that moment that defined that moment. Now there there's nonfiction that came several decades after as historians kind of went back, but there isn't the great Spanish flu American novel, you know? Um, And that suggests a certain desire to forget or, you know, that it wasn't, as you said, Demir, it wasn't ultimately comprehensible. People may have tried to make sense of it, but they couldn't they couldn't make sense of it in a way that could lead to literature or to, or that could lead to a narrative that made sense to the reader so people decided to forget or to table it or to suppress those memories because they wanted to to move on and they wanted to write presumably about other things the roaring 20s and Fitzgerald, I don't even know. I think Fitzgerald was probably, one of his books was probably in the 20s. So, I mean, um, so that we might very well have a situation where it's just bad literature or do we have a great pandemic movie? Not about like uh, some apocalyptic thing where there's a virus that kills people. We've already had those, contagion, outbreak, whatever. But a great movie that actually has the coronavirus as one of its central narrative movements. I'm, I, I don't know. And it was actually quite hard to come up with good post 9-11 literature. And there's been some interesting writing about how it took us a while to, gr- to have a great post 9-11 novel. Some might argue that we haven't had it yet. I, I personally think there's at least one. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I remember that Updike wrote this, um, in his latter years, he wrote a a novel called the terrorist, I think came out maybe six or seven years after nine 11. And for someone of Updike's stature, it, it, you know, it was remembered as one of his, um, rather minor and unsuccessful works because it's actually really hard to write well, at least in fiction about something that is, is um, first of all quite recent, but also so definitive. I mean, a lot of us tend to see—at least I do—I see my life as being, you know, pre and post nine eleven for various reasons. It's hard to kind of write about that in a compelling way, narratively, I guess. Um, and I, I suspect that it's going to be difficult to do that with the coronavirus too. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. Well, lots to unpack for the future. Uh, let's. Uh, <laughs> Let's 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 note some of these things down and return to them. Good talking yeah, as sure. always, Shadi. Okay. All right. Later. Bye bye. Later.